Let's go to God in prayer before we open our text together. Our God and our Father, we are grateful to you for who you've called us to be as your people, for your love and for your faithfulness, for your grace and for your mercy. We are humbled at how far you have come to redeem us, to restore us, to reverse the fortunes of our past ancestors and our current sin. We pray, God, as we open your word this morning, that you would speak to us, that your spirit would be present, and that we would be available to the way your spirit would move within us, to the convictions that we receive as we study the words that you have for us. And as we leave this place, I pray that we would have the wisdom to continue to discern your voice amongst the many that are in this world, that we would be still and available, that we would listen, that we would be convicted, that we would be changed, that we would be inspired and that we would be transformed. We pray that we would have the boldness to follow where you lead and the courage to proclaim the good news of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whom we pray. Amen. What would Jesus do? Right? That was a, a really popular question that was asked amongst a lot of Christian young people for a while. We had the bracelets, we had the chains, we had the WWJD, all kinds of, act, um, not activities really, but accessories you know, that you could wear. And it kind of gave us this idea that we could look back at some point and, and emulate exactly what Jesus would do, and while... Maybe and sometimes that's a good thing to think of is what would Jesus do in this situation? I think it's easy for us to get kind of caught up in the past and think what would Jesus have done? So much so that we forget to ask the question, what is Jesus doing today? I think if we're going to reach a world that needs to hear about who Jesus is, Certainly, the testimony of what Jesus has done in the past is important. We find some of those things in Scripture, and it's important for us to tell and proclaim and to know the things that Jesus did for His people in the past. And it's also important to know what Jesus and what God has promised to do for His people in the future, but what we cannot ignore is what He is currently doing today. That Jesus is actively involved, that God is actively involved in your life in this moment. And there is an impact that exists in our lives currently because of what Jesus is doing. There are those moments in our lives where we are called to live this is going to sound really significant when I give you the examples, but we are placed in a position where we have to be open, honest, and vulnerable before the people that are around. Maybe you can remember some of those moments in your life. I remember a few in my own life that really stick out to me. One was the first time I got up and preached a sermon. I was 12 years old in my home congregation with a whole group of people who were cheering me on, and I remember standing up there in front of all of those people shaking like a leaf. I was afraid I was going to say the wrong thing. I was afraid I was going to say it the wrong way. I was afraid I was going to stutter. I was afraid I was going to do all kinds of things. 
not conducive to preaching. I would love to sit here and tell you that I don't feel that anymore. That that feeling has gone away. It is not true. Because I have a few notes on a piece of paper. Some days more than other depends on how confident I really feel in the, in the topic or in the, the text. But almost every Sunday without fail, when that song before the lesson plays, plays when we stand up and sing, I sit here in the pew and I'm like, what was I going to say? What was I going to say? What story was I going to tell? I don't know. Is this enough? Should I have done this? Should I change it right now? It's not too late to change. Like, yeah, it is too late to change. And the butterflies still come. And I kind of revert back to that 12-year-old boy that's doing this for the first time ever. It's not that different from being on a free throw line with two free throws to win or ice a game and very little time left on the clock or sitting in goal in a shootout and wondering all these eyes are looking at me and the result of what is about to transpire is dependent on me. And the difference is at the free throw line that is true. In net that is true. On the pitcher's mound or or at the plate it is true that the outcome is dependent upon me. But there is something different about what transpires in speaking the Word of God. There is a different confidence level. There is a different surrendering that says, look, you have done the work. Will you trust God to show up in the way that He always has? But it requires a level of vulnerability that we're not always willing to surrender to. I don't know if you know who Andreas Escobar is. Andres Escobar was a football player. You might know him as a soccer player in Colombia. And he was a soccer player in Colombia when Colombia was a drug lord's paradise. Pablo Escobar ruled the country, controlled the country with money, and Andres Escobar refused to be a part of that culture. He said, I want to take my country back. I want to be an example for the people. I want to show the people that you don't have to live life, that we can be Colombians and not be known around the world as people who are roped up, wrapped up in corruption and drugs. And he lived his life that way. He didn't attend those things. He didn't take the payment. He didn't go to the parties. He didn't take the visits that were offered to all the Colombian national team. And he was a good player. And they were the favorites to win the World Cup. And in the first round of the round-robin games, it was a 0-0 game. And on a, on, a, on a ball that was cleared across the middle, Andreas Escobar tried to kick it out of the back of the field, and he put it in his own net. This is only game one. They ended up losing that game. And they lost the next game. And they lost the next game. And the whole team made all kinds of errors. And the team gathered around him and said, Andreas, it's not your fault. We all made mistakes. We didn't perform well in game two and game three. And we had many opportunities to make this right. We are all at fault. But he held that in high esteem and so did his countrymen. In fact, they got back home and he wanted to go out. And he said, I have to show face to my people to show them that we can be better than one mistake. 
And his friends said, don't go out. It's dangerous for you. It's dangerous from us. And these were his words. He said, life cannot end here. He said, no matter how difficult, we must stand back up. We only have two options. Either we allow anger to paralyze us and violence continues. Or we overcome and we try our best to help others. It's our choice. And he left his house. And he was shot and killed that night. In an altercation that began with people making fun of him because of his own goal. He chose to be vulnerable before his people, and he said, we have to take a stand. And that is so frequently what God calls us to do. You don't know how it's going to turn out, but you have to take a stand. You have to be vulnerable. You have to be open when the message you have to proclaim is right. Andreas Escobar was right. We have to show the people that you are not defined by one mistake. The world is not always going to agree with what Jesus has to say. The world is not always going to recognize that what Jesus has to say, even though it requires sacrifice, even though it is a challenge, it is the one thing that offers them the life they have been dreaming of, the peace they have been longing for, and the joy that they have been seeking in all kinds of other things that leave them completely and totally unfulfilled. The world doesn't even realize that the thing they will find, everything they are searching for, the thing in which they will find that is the thing that was crucified on the cross of Calvary. It's a Savior who was laid in a tomb and that was raised to life three days later. And a high priest that mediates and offers that mediation to all who would accept his sacrifice. It doesn't make sense. And sometimes that that message that doesn't make sense is the hardest to proclaim, even when you know it to be true, because it goes against all of our instincts, all of our expectations. All of our desires. Hebrews chapter 4. Let's read our text for today and let's look at what we have in Jesus, right? Verse 14 begins this way. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to the confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way, As we are, yet was without sin, therefore let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us at the proper time. There's a lot packed into those verses, but he's not done. He goes on, he goes, For every high priest taken from men is appointed in service to God for the people to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he must make a sin offering for himself as well as for the people, and no one takes this honor on himself. Instead, a person is called by God just as Aaron was. In the same way, the Messiah did not exalt himself to become a high priest, but the one who said to him, You are my son, 
and today I have become your father. Also said in another passage, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And during his earthly life, he offers prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who is able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Though he was God's son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And after he was perfected, he became a source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And he was declared by God a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. We need a mediator. We need someone who will go and who will contend on our behalf. He says, how do you come into touch with this mediator? How do you engage this mediator? How do you encounter this mediator? He says, you can't do it unless you are willing to be completely open and vulnerable before God. And look, it is hard for me to be vulnerable before anybody. It is hard for me to be open. It is hard for me to expose my weaknesses, the places where I struggle and where I fail. But he paints this stark image of being completely vulnerable before God's all-piercing eye, before His wisdom, before His throne, that one that looks at me and says, you can't hide anything from me. I made you, I've seen you, I've watched you, I know the life that you've led, and I know the things that you struggle with. And he says, we have to lay ourselves bare before the Lord, completely vulnerable, open, and honest, with all eyes on us, including the eyes of the Creator. And when we open ourselves up completely to God, we have access then to the favor of God. He says, hold on. Because even though God sees you, even though He knows you, even though He recognizes every failure you have ever had in your life, He loves you. And He finds favor in you. And it is not because of anything you have done. It's because your Savior has gone before you. And He has already taken care of all of it. And so we have this picture like we are being laid vulnerable before God and He is seeing all of our faults, all of our failures, all of our flaws, all the places where we've messed up, all the times where we have hurt Him. And He's going, yep, there was one there, there was one on this day, and on June 20th, 1977, you did this and this and this. And like He has this checklist of all of our sins and we have to sit in before God who knows all of these things. And I'm going to tell you, that's not the picture that is painted for us. Because if you've been covered by the blood of Jesus, if you've been baptized in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, when God looks at you, what does He see? He sees Jesus. When you lay yourself bare before God, when you lay yourself vulnerable and open before God, we are all terrified because God knows what we've done. But you know what? He doesn't see the things that you've done. He looks at you and he goes, Jesus paid his price. He sees the righteousness of God. That's what Paul tells us, right? God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that who might become the righteousness of God? We. 
See, God has the ability to do something that we don't have. He has the ability to see perfection where perfection simply doesn't exist. Because he sees you through the lens of the blood of Jesus. And so I might be concerned about being vulnerable before you, and you might be concerned about being vulnerable before me. And I might even at times be concerned about being completely vulnerable, even to someone as close to me as my wife. But we don't have to fear being open and honest in an open book before the throne of God. Because we have one who intercedes on our behalf, and he knows what you've been through because he's been there. And he did it. And he gave himself for you. And he hearkens back to the warnings that he gives in chapter 3 and verse 7 through chapter 4 and verse 13. And he brings us back to this theme of of reversal that he introduces in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. If you look back. A couple of chapters. He says, Therefore, he had to be like his brothers in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tested and has suffered, he is able to help those who are tested. So he is going back to the beginning and he is beginning to reverse Eden. He is reversing Herman. He is reversing the things that are going on in your life that the word, the redemption, the power of God is about changing all of the things and making them right. That is good news. And if there is anything that deserves a hallelujah, it's the things that we recognize that God is setting right the things that we have completely messed up. We've had kids that love to visit our house. We don't have a lot of nice things in our house because we had pretty active and destructive kids. They used the living room as a football field. We threw balls. Jody used the back of the couch as a balance beam at times. She would flip and flop and do all different kinds of things over, and Heather would join in, just like I would join in the football games. But we've been to nice houses. We've been to museums. We've been to places that have really nice things. And the kids would get curious when they were young. And they would go grab something. And it was like, oh, don't touch that. <laughs> oh, don't touch that either. And, and every time they would move, you would go set something back in place. And, and, and that's kind of the image that I see of God walking behind his people. And all the things that we mess up, he just sets it right. And he makes it right over and over and over again. Because it's what he does. Because of how much he desires for us to be his children. His people, always setting things right. We see the Hebrew writer recognizing that Jesus passed through the heavens and took his seat at the right hand of the throne of God, fulfilling that ancient promise, that ancient promise of reversal, that ancient promise that there would be a high priest who would perfectly fill every role, the priestly role, the kingly role. High priests offer sacrifices, but Jesus was not only the high priest, he was the sacrifice, and he was the king. 
There is this figure, Melchizedek, that appears in Genesis chapter 14. He is the king of Salem. And you think this is likely the future place of Jerusalem. And here's Melchizedek, who is somehow a Canaanite king, who is also a worshiper of Yahweh. And he meets Abraham, and Abraham recognizes him. And Melchizedek gives Abraham a blessing from God. A blessing, by the way, that was promised in Eden. In Eden, Adam and Eve are created as the priests of God, as mediators between creation and God. When they messed up Eden, they were moved out of Eden. They no longer had that priestly blessing, experiencing all the blessings of Eden. And Melchizedek promises this back to Abraham. He says, Abraham, I am going to give you a blessing that you are going to be a man of many nations, and the whole world is going to be blessed through you. The blessing of God that was given in Eden is going to come back to the world through you. And we know what happens, many of us do, with Abraham and Ishmael and Sarah and Hagar. They were not really content to, to wait on God's promise. But God says, that's not the way I said it would happen. And so Abraham is given Isaac, and then almost immediately, in the grand scheme of things, Isaac's not even really a man yet. And God says, it's time for you to give me Isaac back. I want you to take Isaac up. To, to the mountain, and I want you to sacrifice him back to me. And Abraham obeys. He takes him up on the mountain, on the mountain of God, and he begins to sacrifice his son as kind of a form of confession of all the failures of the past. And God says, stop, and provides for him a sacrifice. And the Hebrews writer will say, because on the mountain of God, the Lord provides And so we have this place where we come back to, and it all comes from this blessing of Melchizedek, a king and a priest, who is given the blessing, and Abraham gives a tenth of, of everything he has to Melchizedek. That's what would be required of them to grant to the priests when they would be given the old law. And all of this is hearkening to a time when Jesus would come. See, Jesus is not a Levitical priest. But he is completing this restoration. See, what we lost in Eden began to be given back when Abraham meets Melchizedek. And it is made perfect in Jesus. Reversing the failure of Hermon. Reversing the failure in the Garden of Eden. Reversing the failure over and over again of the times where we have failed. Jesus is going to go and contend for you in a way that no human king or priest can. He is the perfect high priest. N.T. Wright, in one of his commentaries, writes about an Australian prisoner of war, prisoner to the Germans. Um, his name was Tom Moore, and he was in charge of the Australian barracks. And that meant that he was responsible both to the German authorities for the state of the barracks, and to the Australians for representing the interests of the men. And he spent most days going back and forth between the German authorities and the Australian prisoners, trying to balance the both sides and keep things civil. He had to make sure everything was sorted out, 
despite of the appalling conditions they were living in. In the life that he lived in those barracks, he earned the respect of the Germans. He also earned the respect of his, of his own men. Jesus serves as this kind of intermediary that stands in the gap between God and a creation. God and a creation that's fallen away from the design, from the desire. He does something that we can't do with just a normal mediator. He doesn't just mediate. He doesn't just contend. He doesn't just make sure that things are amicable between the two parties. He stands in front of creation. He says, God, you can't punish them because I've already paid the price. It's already been paid. It's already been taken care of. And so you, can't hold, you don't hold anything against them. And then he stands in the place of God and he looks at the people and he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will grant you rest. Because because of my sacrifice, you don't fear what God will see in you. Complete vulnerability, complete openness before God. Do we have the courage to simply open ourselves up to be inspected by God? If you've been covered by the blood of Jesus, you can. As terrifying as that sounds, he says you can have that confidence before the Lord because he finds you favorable because of the blood of Jesus. Because of your perfect high priest that has already opened the door for you. When will we learn to stop looking for something better than Jesus? When will we learn that we need to stop looking for something that we can add to Jesus that's going to make it even richer than it could be? The question of Hebrews is simple. If Jesus isn't enough for you, then you don't know Jesus. Because if you knew Jesus, you would realize something. Nothing compares to the Son of God.